This morning we come to the end of our series, Come to the Table. Uh, next week as we begin the practice of weekly communion for three months, we are going to be looking at the grace of God. And we are going to be looking to dive deep into what the grace of God means for our lives. But as we come to this final uh, section of this series, we want to kind of bring everything together and just look in general at the practice of the Lord's Supper. And I want to specifically spend a few moments as we begin in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27, because here we have a, a very subtle reference to a very private and intimate celebration of the Lord's Supper, one that would transform the lives of two disciples. And I think we can also see in this little encounter a blueprint for what worship can look like. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13, where it says, Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Just want to pause there for a moment and notice their language in verse 21. These are referenced and referred to as disciples of Jesus. Obviously not among the apostles, not among the closest of Jesus' followers, but followers of Jesus nonetheless. And look at how they phrase verse 1, but we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped. They had lost hope. They had become discouraged. The one that they had gone all in on following believing that he was the Messiah, is now three days in the tomb. And they are heading out to Emmaus, discouraged, defeated, and rethinking what their lives are all about now. But verse 22, it says, Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find the bo his body, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And I love that picture. They're walking along, and they're really conflicted. We had hoped he was the Messiah, but he was crucified. He's in the tomb, but some women went to see the tomb and said he wasn't there, and they were given a vision of angels who declared that he was alive, and some of the apostles went, and they didn't see him either. But again, they keep coming back to, but did not see him. 
And so they leave. Now, my guess is if they had any indication that there was a chance that Jesus was in fact alive, they would have stayed in Jerusalem to find out. But the fact that they leave that very day says to me that they keep coming back to, we hear what you're saying, but nobody's actually seen him. And so Jesus, in verse 27, he begins with Moses, and he goes through all the prophets. He gives to them a Bible study about himself. He goes through the Old Testament and talks about all of the prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be and what was going to happen to the Messiah and what the Messiah would endure. So he gives them this message, this Bible study, the sermon about the Old Testament proofs of the Messiah. In verse 28, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Now, I use the ESV, and in ESV it has this very clunky terminology for when Jesus just has a meal. It says he sat at table or was at table with them. And we have that, but then we also have the, this distinct progression. He took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. These same three actions that we see in the accounts of the Last Supper. So as he's having this meal with these two disciples, he stops that meal to take some bread and he reenacts what he did at the Last Supper. He took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And in verse 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord is risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So look at the, the transformation that happens. They get to their home, they invite Jesus in, they have this meal, he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he distributes it to them, and then in that moment, all of a sudden, everything comes flooding back. All of a sudden, they say, you know what? When he was talking on the road, something was stirring in me, and now all of a sudden, their eyes are opened, and things are starting to come together, things are starting to make sense, so much so that they go right back to Jerusalem. And they add their voices to the witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Of this passage, Raymond Blackader of, in Calvin Theological Journal says that this passage would evoke images of Jesus revealing himself and feeding his people in and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That for Luke's readers, this was intended to be a nod to Jesus celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. Now, Jesus also said, I'm not going to have this with you again until I'm with you in the kingdom. But these two were likely not present when Jesus said that to those who were gathered. But in this moment, there are four things that take place in this interaction with Jesus. 
And it's been pointed out by many commentators and in journal articles that what takes place here are the four core elements of a worship experience for the people of God. That first of all, in verses 13 through 16, there is a gathering. We have where two or three are gathered, where two or more are gathered. We have these two disciples and Jesus joins them. We have the gathering of Jesus' followers in the presence of Jesus. Second of all, verses 25 to 27, we have the word of God being taught. Jesus, from the Old Testament, explains who he is and who the Messiah was prophesied to be. So we have a gathering. We have the teaching of the word. And number three, we have the table, verses 30 to 32. They have their own private communion service. And then in verse 35, there is ascending. They go and become witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. These are the four core elements of a worship gathering. We gather in the presence of Jesus we hear the word of God, we celebrate his table, and in response, we go, we are sent back into the world to be witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So a very powerful story, just really summarizing these core elements of a worship experience. So I want to talk for a few moments about this practice of communion. Again, we, we've talked about some of these issues in previous weeks, but A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance, said that communion should be celebrated not less frequently than once every month on the second Lord's Day of the month. And this was part of the constitution of his gospel tabernacle in Manhattan, which would be the first Alliance church. Notice his language there, that communion was to be celebrated at the gospel tabernacle not less than once a month. In other words, this for Simpson was the minimum. It could be more often, but not less than once a month. And not to shame us as an Alliance family, but in so many Alliance churches and evangelical churches, the norm is now becoming every six weeks or once every quarter. And we seem to be pushing that gap between table celebrations further and further apart. In the Alliance magazine in 1910, it talked about the fact that the frequency of communion was considered a non-essential, which is true. It's not an essential that should divide the people of God. Okay? If some celebrate it weekly, praise God. If some celebrate it once a month, praise God. It's not an essential doctrine of the faith. And so from the Alliance perspective, this was not an issue that we're to divide over. But S.W. McGarvey points out in 1941 that it was the custom of Alliance churches to celebrate the first Sunday of the month. And this was so that all people in all Alliance churches could celebrate at the same time uh, every month. And again, this fellow that we've referred to before, simply identified by the initials J.A.M. in 1934, says, Where a fervor of love exists toward the Savior, there will be a spiritual urge to draw closer to him in the way of obedience and communion. The Lord's Supper being a specific command and being designed to manifest the love of the believer in thus remembering the death and resurrection and also the coming again of our gracious Redeemer. Any failure to observe it on the part of these who definitely 
rejects its validity may be set down as marking a declension in the spiritual life. I can't help but wonder and think out loud, and this is not, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is my speculating. It seems to me that in evangelical circles, the Lord's table is becoming less and less significant. Is there an indication there of our spiritual vitality? And it seems that week after week, if you look at news outlets, that there is some new evangelical leader falling to scandal. We wonder what is going on. Not to say that this is all happening because they're not celebrating communion enough, but as a part of something bigger and more far-reaching among the evangelical churches. Todd Bordeaux in a journal called The Kingdom Compilations in 2014, he said that to suggest that non-weekly communion, he said that suggesting non-weekly communion is not biblical. Does the Bible specifically say that you're to celebrate it every week? No. But the indication that we have from Scripture that when they gathered, they did this in Acts chapter 2. From the record of the early church we have in the Didache that we've looked at before, they celebrated it every week. It would seem to me that throughout Christian history, until fairly recently, weekly communion was the standard among the people of God. Author Tim Chester said, No husband or wife thinks that physical expression of love is redundant. And again, we, we've looked at this before, and several writers have indicated that. And I talked about Chris Burnt from Rama School and, and his discussion about that. I mean, how if your spouse hugs you every day, do you come to a point of like, please stop it? I'm tired of that already. Or if they were to kiss you every day, like, why do I kiss every day? Or say, I love you every day. These expressions of love never become old to us. At least hopefully they don't. And what these writers are saying is that if these expressions of love between husband and wife never become routine or callous or empty in meaning, why do we allow the Lord's Supper to become empty and meaningless? Sometimes it's because we have such a tight schedule of worship. We've got all these things we want to fit in that there's just not the room for it. I would suggest that what I can tell from history, that as evangelicals, we, we have this ingrained in us that having communion every week is a Catholic thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not an evangelical thing. But if any of us ask the question, where did that come from? I mean, I've, I've heard it taught with passion that you don't have it weekly because it will become routine. But have any of us said, you know what, it, that's true, I, I've, I've experienced that. Now, I have experienced that in some context, but it has nothing to do with the Lord's table. It's because of how we treat it. It's just another thing that gets packed into the service. It's not the climax of the service. It's not this defining moment of the service. It's just a thing that we do and then move on to the next. In fact, by the time we get to the Protestant Reformation, Catholic churches pretty much were celebrating the Lord's table once a year. And the reformers from Luther to Calvin, they were the ones who said, as churches, we need to do this weekly. This is the intent. 
But now we've come to 2022 and it's reversed again. Where now we look at weekly communion as a Catholic thing when reality, it was really a Protestant thing. It's a church history issue. But Andrew Murray, he said, the when and how are secondary questions. The most important question is why? And I'd like us to camp and resolve at that. The when and the how are secondary issues. But the most important issue for us with the Lord's table is why. Why do we do it? Why are we celebrating this? And this is why we've spent these six weeks looking at the different angles of the Lord's Supper. It's kind of been like looking at a diamond from different angles to see how the light bounces off the different angles of the diamond, to see the depth and the breadth and the beauty of what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's the why. It's about saying Jesus is at the very heart and center of who we are and what we do as a people of God. And all of the benefits that happen of putting Jesus front and center. And so that is why for these next three months and three months alone, we're, we're not going to say, okay, well, while we're doing it, we're just going to keep doing it. But for these three months, we want to say, Jesus, we want to step in to what church history has told us, what scripture indicates, and what so many have testified to this refocusing on Jesus, this reawakening to the reality of the presence of Jesus among us around his table to see if God would be faithful in that. Rory Noland wrote a great book on transforming worship. He said today, many non-mainline Protestant churches are reinstating weekly communion and in the process are rediscovering what the ancient church knew from firsthand experience, that the word and table alongside each other, serve as a powerful means of encountering Christ. And he goes on to say, given its potential for discipleship, I strongly urge churches intent on presenting every member fully mature in Christ to consider observing the Lord's Supper weekly. Offering the Eucharist less frequently than once a week does not represent traditional historical practice. Does that mean it's sinful? No. Does it mean it's a good idea to do what has been done for 2,000 years? Yeah, probably. But again, this isn't a, an essential matter of the faith. If we come to the end of three months and say, you know, that there's, there's been no real change in the spiritual atmosphere, okay, no harm, no foul. But what if? What if we're missing out on a realization of the presence of Jesus that God longs to pour out to us. A realization of truly making Jesus front and center, of more deeply and fully encountering the reality of Christ our Savior, Christ our Sanctifier, Christ our Healer, Christ our Coming King. A reality of being renewed and re-energized in the mission of God. A reality of drawing closer together as the people of God. The testimony of believers who have gone before us have said, these things take place when you prioritize the table of the Lord. So I want to invite us between now and next Sunday when we prepare to encounter this journey to work in our own hearts, 
to say, Lord, I don't want to treat this as just another part of the service. And we will do all that we can to make sure it's not just another part of the service. I shared the experience I had many years ago of at, being at a church where at one point in the service, one thing stopped. The elders got up, took the trays from the altar, distributed communion, put the trays back, and they introduced me to come speak. It's not what we're going to do. This is going to be our desire to see this be the, the uniting climax of our gatherings, of stepping into the presence of Jesus and being transformed in that very presence. So that's our prayer. And I want to invite us as a family to make that our prayer as well, that we would each experience to some degree this renewed focus on the centrality of Christ, this renewed experience of him as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King, this renewed focus on the mission of God in the world, this renewed sense of a growing love and unity with the people of God. So I want to invite you, would you join me this week in praying that for these next three months that we will begin to see those prayers answered and those realities begin to manifest among us. Let's pray.